Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. You're with Give the People What They Want, brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. It's the end of September. Every year since the 1940s, the end of September has been United Nations um, really month. It was first a week and then it increased as the number of countries increased. Um, every head of state, head of government has to make an intervention at the UN. So naturally, you know, the week became two weeks and so on. Uh, a very important time of year, a lot of agenda setting for the United Nations. Zoe, you are in New York. You've been in and around the UN during the General Assembly meeting. What's been happening at the UN General Assembly? Well, Vijay, as you said, it's a, a very uh, lively week. There's all sorts of different summits, the General Assembly itself, but then all of the bilateral meetings that take place, the different th think tanks that have their sort of meetings around the General Assembly. Um, so it's, a, again, you know, all sorts of diplomats, uh, NGO people are, have all really descended upon the city. Uh, crazy traffic, of course. Um, but it has been uh, quite notable in, in the sense of um, this past weekend, the G77 group was meeting, of course, in Havana, Cuba, um, discussing some of the key issues that would be brought up this week in the UNGA and in the different sort of meetings. Um, Monday and Tuesday, as we reported on a People's Dispatch, and Vijay, you talked about this, about the Sustainable Development Goals, um, this sort of empty uh, promises to kind of trying to, of course, make significant develop and development in a lot of the countries of the world that need it. Uh, but again, uh, as many of these countries have rightly pointed out, both in the uh, Sustainable Development Goals Summit and in their speeches at the UNGA, uh, not only are they suffering from the impacts of climate change, not only are they saddled with so much debt, but the entire, and, and of course, maybe because of this, this the entire international financial system essentially makes it impossible for these countries to really and significantly take forward their development and have any chance of even reaching these goals. So that's been something on the table. A lot of different leaders have even named neoliberalism. I think we're, we really have to take account and take stock of the fact that it is a different moment. Uh, people are talking about inequality, but talking about it in a specific way. Um, again, Climate is, of course, uh, the front of people's agendas. All, a lot of the different representatives from the small island nations, of course, spoke about this and the importance of, an, of global north countries taking action to climate financing. Um, the war in Ukraine, of course, continues to remain a, an item on the agenda. Um, and another really interesting or rather important uh, issue would be that of Haiti. Uh, we know that this is going, that this is being discussed um, in different spaces at the UN. Uh, there has been numerous statements by UN officials over the past year about the situation in Haiti, expressing concern over the increase in gang violence and the institutional breakdown. Uh, however, and you know, Kenya has already sent this alleged uh, peacekeeping mission. There is very difficult uh, situation there because we know that the legacy of the UN in Haiti uh, is one that is violent, um, that was that is very um, traumatic. The UN peacekeeping missions that were in Haiti for over a decade 
um, caused a horrible cholera outbreak. Um, it was responsible for so many different human rights violations. Um, won't even go into all of these. You can read on People's Dispatch. We've covered this extensively um, and interviews with Haitian leaders discussing the MINUSTA. Um, and so now that it's back on the table, uh, organizations in Haiti and, and really, you know, uh, human rights activists across the world are very, very concerned about this possibility of what a new UN peacekeeping mission could look like, how it will be configured, and the fact that the situation in Haiti right now is really caused um, is is a product of of internet of imperialist intervention in the country and not allowing the country to actually uh, build itself up, meet these sustainable development goals, but also really have autonomy over its politics. So, a really uh, that debate is definitely going to be very intense, uh, and we'll definitely be following it. Inclusive of the UN talks around Haiti, um, the discussions at the UN about other big issues, war. Um, issues of uh, climate change and so on. Um, there have been several side meetings of importance, I think, that we should pay attention to. Um, one of the side meetings was, as I said, around the issue of the climate and climate change. Um, let's track a little bit in order to understand this. Let's track a little bit what the United States climate czar, John Kerry, has been up to uh, in this period. It's pretty revealing to understand how the United States has been operating on the issue of climate, um, just in order to get a big picture. Um, before the UN General Assembly came together, before the UN Climate Summit, Mr. Kerry had been making a number of statements, some pretty strong, about oil and natural gas companies, saying that you know they have to step up. Um, they are continuing to drill. They are not concerned about making a transition to clean energy and so on. He made some pretty strong statements beforehand. There's a good reason why Mr. Kerry did this. Um, in about three months in the United Arab Emirates, COP28 will be held, which some people are calling the oil COP. Um, it's an unfortunate uh, designation, actually. But there's something to it, because the Dubai-led um, team that's running COP28 has said that they want to directly engage oil and natural gas companies um, to think again about setting targets not 2050 targets, but maybe even 2030 targets. It has to be said that COP meetings in the last several years have been heavily funded by oil and natural gas companies. So it's not like they've been sitting outside looking in. I mean, they not only are big participants in setting the agenda, but they also happen to pay for it. You know, who pays the piper, calls the tune. Um, so Mr. Kerry's statements about oil and natural gas companies to some extent welcome, because it's true. Somebody needs to tell these big companies that they need to um, pull it together. You know, Interestingly, when it came down to it at the climate summit and, uh, and in, in the outside in the halls, Mr. Kerry once again launched an attack on India, China, and other countries saying, why are they increasing coal? Um, this has become the tagline. This question of India, China, and others using coal. You know, the question is, why are they not making the transition? Now, if we look at the facts, it's pretty clear that Mr. Kerry is being a little malicious here. In terms of renewable energy, United States, about 13% of its energy needs comes from renew renewable energy. China, 14% of 
of their energy needs comes from renewable energy so it's not like the chinese are doing so much worse now it's a much bigger country more energy is used and so on but nonetheless it's not like they are not um you know trying to do this transition when you look at the data on the five countries that are emitting more than their carbon budget based on a per capita calculation the five top emitting countries in the world are the united states germany russia united kingdom and japan and in fact a new study suggests that these countries owe the countries of the global south not 100 billion dollars in the climate fund but 131 trillion dollars okay just imagine that number 131 trillion dollars is what is owed um a new study has suggested now what's interesting is in britain this week rishi sunak prime minister of the united kingdom has decided to suspend the urgency of the climate debate he made a press conference where he said we're not going to meet the targets we're going to push them further along um he made a good point though he said that britain is not a major emitter uh, in in volume terms so if britain uh, cuts its carbon budget fast it's not going to make a huge impact in fact india could make the same argument mr sunak made india contributes about 4% into the carbon excess carbon um if india today just stopped working and everything in india closed down that wouldn't actually impact the 1.5 degree threshold all that much there are major emitters united states is a very large emitter germany europe in in general um they are just not stepping up and in fact britain has given new licenses for oil and natural gas drilling in the north sea um when mr kerry was asked about that he said that's not our agenda but that's not in fact entirely true united states also opening up new oil fields um across the country including in alaska things are being looked at um the climate debate continues to be stalemated between the west refusing to acknowledge its excess carbon role and refusing to pay compensation forget 131 trillion not even 100 billion and meanwhile of course countries like india and china struggling between meeting carbon um you know obligations and also development um this is a debate that is going to run now from this un climate summit all the way to uh, to dubai at cop 28 we're going to follow this of course pretty pretty closely um other kind of agreements in the planet prashant some in the sahel what's happening there right uh we're talking about what is being called the alliance of sahel states niger mali and burkina faso signing what is uh, an agreement uh in the capital bamako in mali's capital bamako actually very interesting agreement at this point of time what is called the liptako gorma charter talking it that reference to the border region between these countries and it comes at a time when as we know all of these countries have had coups the coup in niger was the latest it's about 2 months uh, since that coup and niger of course has been facing a lot of pressure we'll come to that in a bit but has you know not really has sort of refused to sort of give in on most counts in fact uh, they have and uh, they have taken a very strong position against the french we know that the french ambassador was embattled or pretty much besieged that the negotiations are supposedly going on for the eviction of all french soldiers as well and mali and burkina faso have already taken that step as well so in that way it's kind of natural that these two states these three states come together and sign uh, an agreement and form an alliance 
you know, which kind of uh, represents that. And it's kind of also interesting because it in some ways follows on a tradition which I think a lot of, uh, which is kind of maybe lost in the past where many countries in that region at various points did consider, you know, federations or federating uh, themselves to various extents. That was actually a part of the anti-colonial agenda as well. The fact that the boundaries between many of these countries do not really make sense at all. And there is a need for many of these uh, countries to work closer together in whatever capacity possible in a more united way to actually transcend some of the divisions caused by colonialism. So the alliance of Sahel states in some sense is also uh, maybe uh, or potentially serving as a milestone in that aspect as well. But I think also equally importantly is the fact that there is definitely a strong security concern and the security concern is two aspects to it. One there is the there is the issue of insurgency, which is especially peaked in Mali in recent times. And all these countries have faced that in various extents. Now, this insurgency was used by France in the past, which sort of claimed that it would play the role of this kind of neutral uh, arbiter or whatever and come and suppress it for uh, their erstwhile colonies. But just as we talked about in Haiti, the experience of the people when French soldiers was there was quite bad. Not only the French soldiers failed to achieve those objectives, there were many cases of you know, various human rights violations, atrocities, etc., which really made the people angry. And that served as a huge spur for the kind of coups that took place uh, in these countries against the French presence. So now, of course, they have evicted the French, but the issue of uh, the insurgency remains. And while there are, while it is a complex issue, nonetheless, the fact that it is an immediate issue as well of the fighting that is going on over there. So I think that is definitely one aspect. The other aspect where security comes in really is the fact that uh, Mali and Burkina Faso have earlier declared that, you know, an attack on an attack on Niger would be an considered as an attack on them as well. And in that sense, what this alliance does is also sort of strengthen the commitment that these two countries have made to each other. We know that the government of Niger, for instance, has, you know, given the authorization for Mali and Burkina Faso to deploy their forces in the in the event of an invasion. We know that ECOWAS not only discussed the uh, invasion but also talked about a D-Day which had been decided for the invasion to take place, uh, you know, and at that point of time, uh, the fact that there were internal disagreements within ECOWAS was a major reason why there was no intervention at that point of time as well. And even now, the possibility of an ECOWAS military intervention is not over. We still have, uh, you know, various leaders of the region talking, you know, once in a while, sort of mentioning that and saying it's not off the table, but we're still giving diplomacy a last chance, etc., etc. So, uh, and in that sense, too, this kind of an alliance, which is as much a security alliance, has a very powerful significance. So we're talking about two or three dimensions of what this alliance of Sahel states would mean. Uh, we know that Mali did a constitutional referendum, which actually sought to transcend some of the, you know, uh, say limitations placed by the colonial structures and the, the post-colonial the post-colonial governments. So whether this kind of tendency picks up is something that will be interesting to see. We know that the leader of Burkina Faso, for instance, has on international platforms talked about the need to combat, uh, you know, imperialism in various forms. So all of this are very interesting trends to be followed. Finally, just conclude with the fact that uh, Bola Tinubu, the Nigerian president in the United Nations, talks said that all these coups do not indicate that there is support for coups, but that there are these pressing issues to be solved. And but the question really is that. Do the, uh, do the governments of uh, ECOWAS today have the capacity to solve these pressing issues, I think is really the question which is not addressed. Not addressed either for many global South countries. You're listening to give the people what they want. 
brought to you from People's Dispatch, Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Uh, Zoe, uh, can government solve things? You got elections in Ecuador, elections in Argentina. Um, Luisa Gonzalez, point position in Ecuador. What's the agenda? Can they solve things? Well, in mid-October, we're going to see two electoral processes, which are very, very important. Um, and uh, in this past week, actually, uh, the presidential candidate, uh, Luisa Gonzalez of Ecuador, actually uh, made a public statement saying that she, her there had been an assassination attempt against her. We'll get back to that. Um, but the people of Argentina are going to head to the polls. Uh, on uh, October 22nd, people of Ecuador, uh, second round of the elections on October 15th. These, again, are very crucial elections Two countries mired in economic crisis, uh, in security crisis, in a political crisis, um, and really reflecting the trends of the region of this polarization, um, rising insecurity, rising crime. Um, and in, in Argentina, of course, you have the factor of this rising right wing. Um, but both are countries that have been really destroyed uh, by IMF policies, by neoliberalism in the past uh, several years. Um, in, in Ecuador, on these, in the second round of elections, again, Luisa Gonzalez, who denounced that there was a threat against her life, um, those people have been uh, arrested, but um, she, is, she pulled ahead of the other candidates in the first round of the elections. The question is, will she be able to galvanize enough support from other sectors to actually put her across the threshold, or will it happen like it did in 2021, where Andres Arauz was unable uh, to carry forward his first round victory to a second round victory? This is a crucial issue, um, and as you can hear in the different in the debate that took place before the first round, and really uh, the main topic that people in Ecuador are talking about is this issue of crime, is this issue of violence. Uh, what is the perspective of the left on how to address this? Um, it's it's an issue that has so many different factors. It's an issue that um, is impossible to address if they're not able to really change the uh, material conditions of the majority of the people in their countries. So that will definitely be on the front of their minds. It will be on the front of probably a lot of their campaign speeches uh, and in the debates. And in Argentina, uh, as we know, in the primary elections, Javier Millet, who, amongst other things, uh, has now gone in rallies with a um, chainsaw, similar to maybe images that we've seen of Jair Bolsonaro with the uh, machine gun. Um, he is, again, a threat to many, many different things to the people of Argentina, threatening to take away their rights, threatening to cut ministries, um, to take away uh, the very hard fought for right to abortion. Um, and he continues to pull ahead. Um, he has not grown in any of the polls, but there was a study that was released today by CELAG, the Center for uh, Latin American Geopolitical Studies, um, and it put Javier Millet at around 31%, followed by Patricia Bulbrich, the far-right Macrista kind of tendency, and then uh, in third place, Sergio Massa. Um, Sergio Massa is the current economy minister, and there's been a lot of speculation about when does he become a candidate and stop being an economy minister. It seems like he's really upped his campaign efforts in recent days. Um, again, he has a very hard road ahead of him in having come in third place, having being very directly associated to the current government, which has 
a very high disapproval rating. Alberto Fernandez famously did not run for re-election because of this kind of rejection of the people to his government, of course, for many different factors, but one of them being the fact that poverty has increased, inflation is at record levels. In 2022, it was 100%. Um, so these are kind of the main issues that these candidates are having to contend with. Javier Millet calls for dollarization, Bozorich for more austerity. Again, what is the proposal of the left to deal with these huge, huge challenges? Very large challenges. Sometimes economic war is also war, and that's what Latin America has faced. But really, there's no nothing as bad as war itself. So, you know, Prashant, six months in Sudan, Sudan, which has had a long history of warfare in the past several decades, back to war again. It's hard to have this, hard to call this, Prashant, hard to call it an anniversary. I don't know what yeah. word to use. Absolutely, in a sense that I think <clears throat> also. Uh, unlike, say, for instance, the war in Ukraine or whatever, uh, the fact that the war in Sudan has actually fallen off, uh, you know, a lot of the media reports, uh, in fact, reports coming only when once in a while the United Nations or rights organizations bring out some uh, extremely horrible statistics of what is happening. A classic example was just a couple of days ago, I think the UN sources, you know, mentioned that around 1,200 children had died in uh, refugee camps. Uh, in Sudan since May, and you know this is in the White Nile state, and you know uh, they, the the people who the UN experts who talked about this talked about this complete collapse of the health infrastructure in the country. I think the latest numbers say that around 80% of all health infrastructure in conflict hit states has been completely is out of commission, which really throws into sharp light the kind of uh, situation that is taking place. And and the, like I said, the numbers keep the, the horrific numbers keep. Uh, coming, we're talking about around 7,500 deaths in thousands of injuries, and we're talking about millions of people uh, being displaced at this point of time. I think just because of this conflict, we're seeing about 4.1 million people internally displaced, and around 1.1 million people or so displaced into other countries. And this has actually made Sudan the the most, uh, you know, the highest number of people uh, that have been displaced due to a conflict right now is in Sudan at this point of time or in this very short span of uh, six months. That really kind of shows the intensity of uh, what has uh, what, what is taking place in the country right now. And we have a report from our colleague, Pawan, that gives much more details. But I think the important thing to note is that, on the one hand, I think efforts at peace have pretty much completely stalled. There are fresh, uh, uh, there are fresh conflicts breaking out. There have been reports, for instance, of uh, fighting breaking out or tension breaking out in Port Sudan in the east as well between some tribal communities and the military who are technically on the same side, so to speak, against the rapid support forces, which is the uh, other side in the war. There is an intense amount of fighting taking place, for instance, in Khartoum, in Darfur, the amount of massive human rights violations and atrocities, are, you know, there it's an entirely another level altogether. Also, we need to remember that the Darfur region has seen decades or at least years and years of similar atrocities and this has just escalated during uh, this particular conflict. So in every sense of the term, I think it's, uh, and you know, by now experts are also, of course, warning of this becoming uh, a kind of conflict which continues for many, many months, um, many more months in the future right now. And like I said, very little signs of uh, peace agreements or any discussions of, of that taking place. So it seems a bit of a, 
you know, uh, it's it's not a definitely not a frozen conflict, but it seems a conflict which might just continue to escalate at this point of time. And I think very important to remember, you know, the fact that uh, the roots of all this lie in the kind of uh, encouragement, the kind of support that these sections of the military got from all the key uh, players in the region, uh, all the you know uh, the international groupings which came to resolve, wanted to resolve all these issues, kept promoting these generals as the solution as part of the solution, although the people on the streets had consistently warned that they were going to do this exactly this, that they were going to be part of the problem rather than the solution. But their voice was absolutely not heeded. And you know, now we're six months into this conflict, we have this uh, massive crisis that is on right now. Well, you know, this is a very important issue, and you pointed it out directly, Prashant. The question of this is off the radar, and it should not be off the radar. Interestingly. To some extent off the radar, although Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman did go on Fox News, there's very, very little chatter about this negotiation around quote-unquote normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel, brokered by the United States. It's important to put this in context. A few years ago, during the administration of Donald Trump, there was a real push for normalization. Mr. Trump leaned in on the various monarchies in the Arab world. I think they made a strategic calculation. Forget the Republican kind of governments, you know, whether it's in, um, you know, Syria, of course, has a whole different history, but even Iraq. Um, they didn't bother with the non-monarchies. They put a lot of pressure on the monarchies, on Bahrain, on the United Arab Emirates, on Morocco. These three countries under the Trump administration quote-unquote, normalized relations with Israel. Um, this was known broadly, particularly the Bahrain and UAE section as the Abraham Accords. Um, you know, the real prize here is not the UAE and Bahrain, even Morocco. The real prize is Saudi Arabia. If Saudi Arabia, quote-unquote, normalizes with Israel, you add in that Egypt and Jordan have already normalized. There'll be immense pressure on countries like Lebanon and so on to follow suit. Um, that's the real prize here. So there was a lot of pressure to get Mohammed bin Salman, who effectively is the only person of importance in the Saudi royal family right now, to accede to the agenda. Well, it's very interesting what the Saudis put on the table. The Saudis put two issues on the table. You see, the Israelis only had one issue, normalization. They want, they know if Saudi Arabia normalizes, their situation is going to change dramatically. That's all they want. What did the Saudis put on the table? The two main issues. One was improvement of the status of the Palestinians. Um, in other words, something that if you read between the lines looks like a binational civic state of Israel, you know, to absorb the Palestinians. in. I think if you look closely at the uh, kind of conversations around normalization, it looks like the Saudis are ready to say the two-state solution is gone, although they don't say it explicitly. But the conditions of the Palestinians have to be improved. That's one. Secondly, Saudi Arabia says, we want the United States to help us build uranium enrichment inside the kingdom. We have uranium. We want to have a, um, a nuclear energy program. So therefore, we want uranium enrichment. Interestingly, inside Israel, this has, of course, provoked a debate. Some people argue that the government of Mr. Benjamin Netanyahu 
would be willing to give Saudi Arabia uranium enrichment, but not allow improvement of status of the Palestinians. Uh, that for Mr. Netanyahu is non-negotiable. Sections of the Israeli security apparatus say no chance. Saudi Arabia cannot get uranium enrichment from the U.S. At the Fox interview, Mr. Mohammed bin Salman was asked about the question of a bomb. Because when you talk uranium, you're always going to go in the direction of, is it really for peaceful purposes? And he said, look, if Iran gets a bomb, we want one. Now, in the conversation, nobody said the only person with a bomb right now in the Middle East is Israel. And in fact, Israel is the one that's blocking, making the Middle East a nuclear-free zone. Um, Iran is actually quite prepared to sign on to a nuclear-free zone, but they want Israel to also sign on and therefore dismantle their nuclear weapons industry. The thing is that everybody is quite clear, and Mohammed bin Salman winked and indicated this in the interview, that if he doesn't get a nuclear enrichment deal from the United States as part of the normalization package, they're just going to go to Russia or to China to get it. Um, Saudi Arabia is committed to having their own nuclear energy program. They are committed to that. They're going to get it one way or the other. The Americans are desperate to get it as part of this deal. Um, the Israelis are not going to allow it. My God, you know, world history takes place through contradictions. Things are never simple. Here, Saudi Arabia made a deal with Iran. Both of them are joining the BRICS bloc. Um, there is no easy way to move history forward once again. You've been listening to Give the People What They Want, brought to you from People's Dispatch. That's the editor, Zoe and Prashant. Um, I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Next week, it's 145th show. Just a few shows to 150, guys. Um, we're going to give you a treat on that day. See you later. Overcome We shall overcome